one of the dilemmas of studying character and studying it in lots of different dimensions. So whether it's the, the psychology, you, you may not believe this, but there are thousands of pieces of research done by scientific psychologists on how to build good character in various different ways, whether it's looking at that, that side of things, whether it's looking at the theology, working through scripture, thinking about what some of the leading theologians through history have said about character, or whether it's just purely the pragmatic thing of what works, how do we do this, how do we make it creative, how do we make it interesting. One of the big dilemmas about the whole thing is that nobody can actually agree what the word character means. So we called it the character course. It was tempting to call a don't know course. It's a bit more difficult to spell. But um, it's like, what do we mean when we're talking about character? It's one of those words, um, like leadership, for example, um, like prayer, that we seem to know what it is when we do it. But if you try and come up with a catch-all definition for it, it's really difficult to come up with something where someone doesn't put their hand up and go, you haven't included this, or what about that, or that's not my experience of prayer. You know, it's really, really difficult to come up with what it means. So generally, Christians talk a lot about character. You know, churches talk a lot about we need to have good character. Character is important. Uh, I've been hearing Christians in leadership contexts saying for a long time, our character must excel our gifting. In other words, you know, how you behave, who you are is much more important than what you accomplish, what you do. Couldn't agree more. And one of the people um, in history, particularly uh, here in the UK, uh, who's sort of talked about in terms of character is William Wilberforce. So he's viewed as... You know, the, the kind of guy who was best known as a kind of moral political reformer. He championed the 1833 Abolition of Slave Act um, and, and died pretty soon after that. Literally, it was the last thing he did um, when he left Parliament. Um, and he was viewed as one of these people who changed the character of a nation. And he wasn't just about the politics. He was about actually trying to change the ethos, the general way, the general culture of the way people did things. Um, in 1797, he published a book with a really snappy title. It was called A Practical View of the Prevailing Religious Systems of Professed Christians in the Higher and Middle Classes of this country contrasted with real Christianity. We usually just call it real Christianity. Um, what, I mean, why go with a short title when you can have a whole sentence? Um, but believe it or not, a book with a title that long was a bestseller. Um, uh, within its first six months, it sold 6,500 copies, which was massive um, in, in that era. Um, and it was translated into numerous languages. And when Wilberforce was asked, what was the point of that book? Why did you write it? He said this. He said, I want to make goodness fashionable. I want to make goodness fashionable, something to be pursued. His deeper aim was to transform the entire moral character of his nation. And so if you go to Westminster Abbey and you read his epitaph, he's, he's buried there just next to his colleague, um, Pitt the Younger, and um, his epitaph reads this. It says, in a country fertile in great and good men, he was among the foremost of those who fixed the character of their time. He was among the foremost of those who fixed the character of their time. So there's many different ways of talking about character, but one of the ways we can talk about it is to begin to think about what is it in you that makes a good impact on the world? What is it in you that leaves an impression when you leave the room? Some psychologists would say that character is the spell that you cast over other people. It's like what leaves an impression? And the interesting thing about character is it's not just Christians who go on about character. The other people who go on about character are screenwriters. 
So I, I've just seen um, Avengers Endgame. Um, I thought I'd just give you a blow-by-blow -blow account through the various elements of that movie for you right now. Um, anyone seen it? A anyone looking forward to seeing it? A anyone become murderous if I give you any spoilers? Okay, Johnny, yeah. Don't want to mess with Johnny, man. Okay. Um, so so I, I saw it yesterday. I wept like a baby. Got two sons, me, my two, two sons there. We're all crying. My wife, who's not usually a crier, is kind of just looking at us going, what is going on here? Um, and uh, before I watched the movie, I didn't want to read any reviews, didn't want to see anything, didn't want to know anything about it. I just wanted to go and enjoy it. So I will do that for you too. I won't say anything about it. But um, just this morning, I, I read a review of it in The Guardian because I thought I can go back. And the review effectively said this. It said, why is this movie so successful? Why does it work? And they say, of course, it's got spectacle and it's got CGI and it's got all these wonderful things going on. And if you're like me and you've seen all the films and you're really emotionally invested in that bit where Spider-Man turned to dust. Oh, I'm so tearful. You know, if you've got all that going on, you're really into it. And they say, what is the success of this movie? They said, it's the triumph of character over spectacle. It's the triumph of you caring for these characters, caring for these things, because you've kind of got to, I know, I know they're fictional, but you've got to know them. They've kind of cast a spell on you. They've left an impression on you, and therefore you're, you're invested. You care. So what I'd like to do today is just say three things about character that might help you and begin to set you up a bit of some of the ideas that you'll encounter in the character course. I'm going to try not to preempt too much of what's in the character course so you can discover it then. Um, but I thought what I'd do is, I thought I would take three quotes that screenwriters have made about character. It's a bit of a weird one. Usually you quote the Bible, don't you? There'll be a bit of that. Um, but, but like three quotes that screenwriters have said about character and what they tell us about character development. So basically, if, if you're a Christian, this will be good for you. It'll be even better for you if you're a screenwriter, writer, things like that. So first thing is, character is what you express. Character is what leaks out of you. It's not what you speak, it's what you leak, psychologically speaking. Sid Field is one of the leading people since the 1970s. If you're writing a screenplay, you, you will go and read Sid Field, and he has all kinds of things to say about character. And one of the things he says about this, about character on screen, is action is character. A person is what he does, not what he says, because we're telling a story in pictures. We must show how the character acts and reacts to the incidents and events that he or she confronts and overcomes or doesn't overcome during the storyline. Action is character. The comedian Harry Hill um, has a line where he says, um, you can tell a lot about a person by what they're like. <laughs> and he's basically, weirdly, that's actually quite a good definition of character. It's what you're like. What's, what's the impression that you leave on a room? And you can see this in good and bad ways. I, I, that there's certain people, I, I'm sometimes sat in my office at work with some of the administrators and chatting away to them, and suddenly the phone will ring and they'll look at the dash and they'll see who it is, and there'll suddenly be an argument among the four of them, who's going to pick up the phone to this person? That person has left an impression. And then there's other people who, no matter what they do, no matter who they are, when you know they're coming, you're just really delighted. Yeah, they're going to be here. They will be here. They'll bring hope. They'll bring vividness. They'll bring excitement into the room. Character is what you're like. 
And even though as Christians we've talked quite a lot about character, it's quite interesting that when you read biblically in the New Testament, um, there aren't that many occurrences of the word character in Greek. There's just literally a handful of them. It's made harder by the fact that sometimes in English we've, we've used the word character when there is no underlying word there. So um, one translation of some of John's gospel says that, you know, uh, the devil is a liar. It is his character, but there's, there's no word for character in that thing. It's basically saying, this is what the devil is in essence. So there are really two Greek words that we tended to translate as character. Now, at this point, I have to say I'm a professional psychologist. I'm not a professional theologian. I know there are theologians in the room. Uh, and I have to say that when I pronounce Greek words, I always feel a bit like I'm ordering some furniture from Ikea. Um, I think I'm telling you something really, really deep about the Bible, but I could just be organ you know, ordering a really deluxe desk lamp or something like that. I, I wouldn't know. So um, I, I'll point you to some of these things and we can see what we do. Now, the word that's generally translated character, and this is true not just in the New Testament, but also across kind of classical Greek philosophy as well. So this is the word that Aristotle was using, who's a sort of big name in the world of character from the Greek perspective. The word that he used was ethos. It means the custom, the tradition. Um, it means to be accustomed to repeat something, to do it over and over again. It's like the culture of a situation. And when you begin to look um, in the Bible, that word ethos or etho is often used to describe the habits or repetitive actions that characterize people. So it's used of the apostles. Um, it's interestingly used quite a bit of Jesus. So in the Gospels, um, when Jesus is teaching people, it's described as his ethos, his character. His character was to teach people, to share what he knew, to tell people about it. When he attends synagogue, it's, uh, it's his habit, it's his tendency. That's what he does. He goes to the synagogue and he's part of that community. When he retreats to the Mount of Olives to pray, it says, as was his habit, as was his character. These were just sort of rhythms, patterns in Jesus. Even though he was the Son of God, it seems that even he, in his human form, followed habits, patterns, ways of doing things. And I have to say that one of the kind of things for the character course, for those of you who do it, it was to try and find evidence-based habits, patterns, exercises you could pick up that would help you. And some of them are good, and some of them may not work for you, and some of them will be like spot on. But the whole point is just to find out which of these really get you loving people, really lead to some hope, really help you persist? Which of these really put you in a place of forgiveness? Which of these really get you seeking after God? And you can kind of find those things as you go through. But the other thing about ethos is that it's not just an individual thing. Ethos belongs to a group of people. So it's people doing things together. And in a sense, you could say that that's what the church is. The church is a community of character where we learn to love, where we learn to have faith, where we learn to have hope, where we learn to, to be wise in our decisions, where we find some self-control to move away from some of the things in us that are more impulsive or difficult or problematic, that the church is a place where we grow in those things together, that character actually requires community. It requires a bunch of people who know where they're going and know what they're about. And I think usually where we're going is, we want to be more like Jesus. And interestingly, we all show Jesus in a different way. So for some of you, you show it in your hope. Others show it in their forgiveness. Others show it in their self-control. And sometimes we carry elements of character for other people. Hey, ever, ever had someone in your small group who's depressed? And so you carry the hope for them. Ever had someone who's really, really struggling with illness long-term? And you kind of carry the hope and the persistence for them. 
But sometimes in a community, people, when your character is struggling or it's difficult, other people can carry that on your behalf. That's how it works in a community of character. The theologian Craig Kostler put it like this. He said, the mission of the church is to be a laboratory of the world's possibility. It is to be a utopian community, a test case for how humans might live together as diverse but unified. It's the laboratory of the world's possibility. In other words, from from Paul's perspective, from Jesus' perspective, the church is this place where we see what might just be possible when God comes and lives among a group of people. So character is habitual. It's repeated in habits. The the other word, biblically, that's often translated character um, is the word dokime, which is derived from the adjective dokimos, which means tried and approved. So when Paul is talking about Titus or Timothy, and he says they're tried, approved character, he means I've seen them do it over and over and over again. They can do this. This is what they're like. This is why when, when um, it, let's say you know someone and you know them to be a really, really good person, and then one day you hear a sort of rumor about them having done something bad or said something horrible, part of you goes, that's really out of character. What's going on there? What's going on with that person? E- either that story isn't true, or there's some other piece of information I don't have here, because I've been with that person many, many times, and I know that they generally don't behave like this. Character is what's been proved in us under pressure. And probably the most well-known use of the word character in the New Testament is this word, and it's when Paul, in, in the epistle to the Romans, having explained all the delights of grace and all the wonderful things that God has done, suddenly in Romans 5 flips into something incredibly pragmatic, where he just starts talking about suffering. How do we suffer? What happens when we suffer? What's that all about? Um, And in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. So character ends up in Paul's list, sandwiched somewhere between persistence, keeping going, pushing on, and hope. And hope is basically that that there is something Jesus is drawing you towards. There's this big picture hope in Scripture that says one day the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That this great future that we belong to, that we're part of, that we kind of imperfectly try and keep up with. But Paul is saying there's something you persist in and that leads to this sense of I know I can do that now. I was talking to someone the other day who was telling me about how... um, they, they, they struggled with their brother who'd been extremely abusive to them for many, many years. Um, and consequently, forgiveness was a massive, massive issue for them. And then um, uh, her, her brother um, died of cancer quite young, quite suddenly. And um, in the process of dying, he actually apologized to her for all the ways he treated her in the past. And at that moment, suddenly, forgiveness that seemed to be something that was such a reach, such a difficulty, such a problem, has now become something that for her is kind of her ministry. She's not only great at it, she can teach it to other people as well. It's like one of those moments where God was really saying, that's your character, that's what you've persisted in. And not only is that your character, you can do that now and you can do it over and over and over again, but actually also it leads to hope that you're becoming more like Jesus, even in the midst of some of the pain that's coming your way. Same thing happens whenever you read those newspaper articles about someone who is hugely courageous. Usually what you find is they've been courageous like that in loads of little ways over and over and over again. And when the big moment comes, bam, they're ready. 
So character is what we stick to. It's what becomes part of us. And what is part of us can't be jettisoned or denied or despaired of when things get tough. If your character's been tested and you've come through, you suddenly kind of own that. That's, that's yours. God has taught it to you. And just as I, I was sat there, I was reminded of a poem um, that I have to say this was written um, in the 19th century before the days of um, gender-inclusive pronouns, so you'll have to forgive that bit. Um, but it's really a, a poem about what happens when we find ourselves stuck in those kind of problems. And it goes like this. When God wants to thrill a man and drill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so bold a man that all the world might be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects, whom he royally elects, how he hammers and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay that only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and with mighty acts induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. I have to say, I'm one of those people who tends to think that God doesn't actively do those things, that life brings those things our way, but that very often in the midst of our pain, in the midst of the suffering, there is something there for us. There's something to be learned, something to be taken. There's some gold that we can take with us out of it. So that's character express. It's what we repeat. It's what consistent in us. People expect it of it. We expect it of ourselves. And it's held in community. It's a group of people. And as you can see, sometimes it's difficult, it's tenuous, it's hard to stick with. So that's why the, the theologian Stanley Hauerwas wrote, character is who we are when no one's looking. A person of character is happy with who they are so they don't have to try to be someone they're not. Whether alone or with others, they're the same person. They have a life narrative that they believe makes them who they are. That's what it means to be a person of character who you are when no one's looking. One of my favorite definitions of character is probably who you are in spite of the circumstances. What's the bit of you that makes a difference? So character, it's what, it, it's what we express. It's who we are, it's our habits, it's all those kind of things. It's in our community, it's that kind of thing. But character also has a kind of active quality to it. It's not just a description of who we are, it's also what we exercise, what we do, what we put into practice. Let's go back to Sid Field again, giving his advice to scriptwriters. Sid says this. Don't know him personally. Let's call him Sid. I'd like that. He says, if you're writing your script and sense your characters are not as sharp or defined as you think they should be, the first thing you should determine is whether they are an active force in the screenplay, whether they cause things to happen or whether things happen to them. Are they an active force? That's where vivid, lively character comes. Is it about the world impacting on them, or are they representing something for the world, standing for something? So character is what we exercise. It's what we do. It's, it's got some intentionality to it. It's got some agency to it. It's got a bit of decision around it. Um, and I have to say that this whole notion of kind of exercise is really becoming quite popular in the world, particularly of well-being now, not just physical exercise, but mental exercise. 
Uh, I'm currently working with a pretty good company, I, I won't name them at this point in time, but they're putting together a new app that's aiming to change the way we talk about mental health. Um, and basically their view is what we want to do is we want to teach people uh, what they would call mental exercise, psychological exercise, and it has conversations you can have with people, um, you can go through stuff on your own, you can do it in groups, you can go online and have these kind of conversations, and basically a whole series of questions that you pose to one another and you listen to one another, and some of them are about gratitude and some are about forgiveness and some are about how do I set myself a good goal, how do I prioritize, how do I sleep well, so all these kind of things are coming through and right in the middle, um, Lincoln University is one of five universities in the country that's currently trialing it and I'm sort of helping them do it at the moment. But character involves that kind of exercise, you know, that we can build character in the same way that you might build your body through physical exercise, you can build your character through characterful exercise. And when you look at the world of um, spiritual disciplines, there's been quite a lot of emphasis placed on this. You probably will have encountered um, Dallas Willard um, if you've looked into this area, but he's one of the people who died a few years ago, but before that just wrote the most profound things on how to have spiritual discipline, how to use spiritual discipline. In fact, sometimes when I read his material, it's so good, I think I should just stand up and read a chapter of Dallas Willard to you, because it'd probably be better than anything I would say about it. Um, but the interesting thing, when you start to look in Scripture at what words are around that, generally speaking, the Greeks went to the word gymnazo, from which we get the word gymnasium. Um, it, it literally means, um, well, it comes from the word to be naked, because that is what the Greeks did. You know, when, you know, when Paul says, you know, run the race unhindered, he wasn't saying, you know, just take off your pullover and don't run with a latte in your hand. He was thinking about the Greeks who ran completely starkers. You know, he's saying literally just go for it. Um, I don't think he was saying, I think he was being figurative about that, but um, that's what he was getting at. Um, and so character, this word gymnazo, actually doesn't really appear that often in the New Testament as well. But when it does, it's really, really important. Firstly, it appears in the notion of what we focus on. So quite often, character begins with awareness. So as human beings, we have a natural negativity bias, which means we are kind of attracted to what's difficult, what's twisted, what's painful, uh, what's a bit devious. We just have a natural kind of bias towards those things because they interest us and they attract us. And from a psychological point of view, generally speaking, that's because it's those things that have the capacity to damage us in some way. And so either we're attracted to them to try and understand them, and then sometimes we get stuck in them as a result. Just think about if you've ever received any feedback on anything, which bits do you remember? I almost guarantee you don't remember you know, the good stuff that was said. So for example, with the character course, it's a warning by the way, I, I, I've received loads and loads of emails from people telling me how wonderful it was, great. Um, I've received one email from someone telling me that basically it wasn't good, they won't recommend it to anybody, they think my voice is really, really monotone, they couldn't read any of the script, um, and that generally, they kind of wasted eight weeks of their life doing it. It's interesting that I can remember that email quite vividly, but not some of the others. Um, because we're attracted to negative things. That's what tends to stick in our minds. And interestingly, when we start to look at the word gymnazo, training, being trained in the spirit, one of the ways that Paul talks about it is what you turn away from and what you turn towards. So to Timothy, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so when it comes to exercise and character, in a sense, we're kind of asking the question, 
What are you going to turn away from? And what's interesting here is the thing he says Timothy should turn away from is myths, is gossip, is sometimes it's translated rumor. Um, And I sometimes think when I look at this, I I think how often we kind of get distracted into taking a really, really strong position on something that we don't think is right or whatever, and and then kind of shutting that area to God. This is my opinion. This is who I am. I sometimes think when James says not to have faith without works, what is faith without works? Faith without works is to have an opinion. Because an opinion sticks you on the sideline, and you watch, and you point, and you judge, and you get into all kinds of domains of recreational complaint about things. It's like having a bit of fun. And yet, in the process, we kind of seal ourselves off. Sometimes find this with people um, who who get really into conspiracy theories about how the moon landings didn't happen and things like that. And, And the only effective way I've ever found to be able to intervene with that, if they're Christians, is to say, I'm so sorry you've lost your faith, because you're describing a world without God now world that's got no openness, that really is controlled by some mysterious figures who control everything, the weather, the whole thing, the whatever. And Paul is saying, that's the stuff to turn away from. Turn away from gossip. Turn away from strong positions on something. Turn away from rumors. Turn away from myths. Turn away from studying really, really obscure eschatology and then getting really hung up on what that's all about. Turn away from those things and turn towards godliness. The word godliness literally means good worship, openness to God. I'm just going to open a crack to you in this. And I think if we're all really honest, we all have those areas of ungodliness. I certainly do. I certainly have areas where I've kind of said, I don't really want you in this bit of my life, God. And the challenge of gymnasio, the challenge of exercise is, am I willing just to open that a little crack and say, okay, God, come in. Come into that bit of me that isn't always open to you. The way Dallas Willard described it was like this. He said, um, a spiritual discipline is an activity that is within our power, something we can do, that brings us to a point where we can do what we at present cannot do by direct effort. Something we can do that eventually takes us to a place where we can do something that at the moment we can't do. So in essence, what we're talking about here is the way in which we train for any complex activity. Um, so um, I, I've kind of followed my, my kids into various hobbies as they've had it. So when they did karate, I did karate. Um, when they got into football, I got into football, um, not in a kind of creepy, invasive way, but just kind of wanting to accompany them in it. Um, my, we, we inherited a drum kit, so my eldest son started to learn drums, didn't really enjoy it very much. So as the drum teacher was still coming to our house, I thought, well, why don't I just tell? I'll, I'll do that. So I... Got, got my grade one coming up, very proud, thank you. Um, but what you learn with all those things is that all the time you're learning to, you know, when you first start drumming or whatever, there's loads of stuff I just can't do, I can't, it's impossible. And so I'm there doing my rudiments, going along. When I did karate, I kicked and punched my way up and down a village hall for about three years before my kids gave up and then I felt weird being the only adult with five-year-olds doing it. I thought, now's the time to stop. Um, <laughs> And and there was an instant where I accidentally kicked someone in the head, but we won't go into that right now. Although, if anyone works for child services, it it was a mistake. Um, but, but, But Paul is basically saying there's certain things we just have to practice, and we have to try them over and over and over and over and over and over again, and eventually they kind of become second nature. They become part of who we are. 
And the writer to the Hebrews has a slightly different way. He says solid food, in other words, the really, really good teaching that will help you develop into Jesus is for the mature. It's for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's those who've trained constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Because if you're anything like me, there will be areas of life where you fight a kind of running battle on areas of sin. It could be gossip, um, it could be sexuality, um, it could be money or lack of generosity, etc. And, and the writer of the Hebrews effectively is saying that those areas are the very areas where God is training you. So the areas that you feel are your greatest failings are the very areas you need to be waving God in and saying, come on, help. Um, one of the prayers I found myself praying a lot over the last few years is, God, I can't change this. Please give me a strategy. Show me what the steps are that I need to follow to get out of this. And you know what? What you often find is it, it's not necessarily the problem itself. That the solution doesn't lie in the problem. The solution lies in looking away to the problem. Ask yourself the question, when I'm not doing this thing, acting in that way, what's happening then? Are you closer to God? Are you more loving towards people? If you have an issue with gossip, when you don't gossip, is that because actually you've taken the courage to address it directly to someone or you've decided, okay, I'm going to shelve that and leave it? What happens when you don't fall into those areas? In a sense, that's what gymnasium means. It means beginning to train yourself to move away from some of these areas that are really, really difficult. And that's what character does. In many ways, it's the heavy lifting of Christian discipleship. It leads to maturity. And when we can do this reliably, the author seems to think that it's only then that we're ready to hear the really, really good stuff. So character is what we express. Character is also active. It's what we exercise. And thirdly and finally, character is the excellence you pursue. So, so far, the way I've talked about it, this could be a completely psychological, apart from the fact that I've quoted the Bible a few times, yeah, this could be a completely psychological, secular talk. Character is what you do, it's what you express, it's what you exercise. But then there's this little bit of magic, if I can call it that, that arrives with the Holy Spirit, that arrives with Jesus. In fact, if you want to tell the entire story of Scripture, you could tell it through the word fruit, that it begins in a garden with good fruit and bad fruit, and we eat the good fruit, but we also eat the bad fruit, and then God starts a community, and the aim of that community of Israel is to actually produce the good fruit, and a load of prophets come along, ending with John the Baptist, who say, where's the fruit? Where was it? And then Jesus comes and says, thankfully, you can now abide in me, and you will bear fruit. And then Paul says, and thanks to the Holy Spirit, that fruit is beginning to develop in you, and then it ends in a city that looks a little bit like the garden that we started off with, with a huge tree that has leaves and fruit for the healing of the nations. It's like this is the kind of big picture that God has. So when we start moving the direction of character, so often we find that God just comes with us. I even find that in incredibly secular contexts. So a number of times I'll be sat somewhere, I haven't mentioned Jesus, I haven't talked about any of that stuff, but we've been looking at hope and love and kindness and self-control and things like that, and suddenly people start saying crazy things. We had one where someone who was really, really opposed to God right at the beginning, at the end of the training, said, would it be okay if I just offered a prayer of thanks at the end of this? That's what I feel I want to do. Another time where we were talking about spirituality and how spirituality leads to gratitude and all this kind of thing, and one guy's pupils just suddenly go to pinpricks, and he shakes. And if I was here, I would say, oh, he's just having an experience of the Holy Spirit. He had no framework. He's like, I don't know what you guys have done to me. What is going on? So we had to have a bit of a talk about how we might understand what's happening. So this other dimension to character, 
um, that is the excellence we pursue. Let, let's go to K.M. Wyland. She is also a script writer and advisor, and she says this. She's talking about characters in movies. In order for your character to evolve in a positive way, he has to start out with something lacking in his life, some reason that makes the change necessary. He is harboring some deeply held misconception about either himself, the world, or probably both. For your character to evolve in a positive way, he has to start out with something lacking. In other words, there's something aspirational about character. And the word used in Greek to describe this kind of moral goodness is usually translated virtue. Again, there's quite a few words in the New Testament that shouldn't really be translated virtue, which we sometimes do. But the Greek word is arete. And interestingly, behind the word arete is really the notion of manliness. In other words, what it's saying is to be virtuous, to be excellent, is to be more human. Some people have defined ethics in that way. That ethics is making the human more human. So being human isn't just a description of who you are, it's also an aspiration of what you might become. This is the word that Paul uses uh, when he's talking to uh, the Philippians, and he gives them a long list, which is it's probably one of my favorite scriptures. It sits so well with all the work that I do. He's getting towards the end of the, le the letter, although I think he says finally three times in this letter. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable... If there is any excellence, that's the word virtue, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So firstly, he's saying, these are the things to think about. This is the things to pursue. It's the next bit that's a bit of a surprise. We quite often read verse 8, but verse 9, he says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace be with you. He's saying these aren't just abstract qualities that are hanging out there. He's saying you've seen them in me. Think about how you can develop character in this room. Who do you know who's wonderfully loving? Who do you know who's fantastically disciplined and persistent? Who do you know who's right now going through a really, really hard time, but they're dealing with it fantastically well? Who do you know who um, is wonderfully compassionate? You know if you have an issue, you can sit down with them in the pub or outside, uh, and, and you'll get some compassion and some kindness. Who do you know who's fantastically brilliant at giving advice? This is how character manifests in the community of people. It's not just an abstract idea. It's in people. So Paul is telling us to think and be inspired by moral virtue modeled in other people. And so character is not, not just who we model ourselves on, but it's also what we channel. In other words, when Peter writes to his recipients, he, he calls them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that their aim is to proclaim the excellencies of God, the goodnesses, the virtues of God. And then in his next letter, he says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We're not in it on our own. When we open ourselves to Jesus, when we open ourselves to the Holy Spirit, actually we start to find him guiding us in really, really subtle, careful ways. I think the issue for us very often as Westerners who live in a technological society is that we're used to things changing at the flick of a, flick of a switch. We much prefer surgery to physiotherapy. Surgery, they knock you out, you go in, they whip your thing out, you're done. The end, hopefully, if it works well. 
Physiotherapy, I had a running battle with my physiotherapist about when and how I was going to do those stupid hip exercises because they seemed to go on forever and ever and ever and there was no noticeable improvement. And yet, you know what? When I finally committed to doing them 30 or 40 times twice a day, I improved. Suddenly, I was able to run and before I was getting injured every time I ran. Suddenly, I had core strength and before I didn't seem to have any and when it comes to this kind of exercise, in a sense, that's what we're being invited into. We're being invited into something that we may not always see the immediate benefits, but it does come. God has given us all the power and resources that will allow us to live life full in a godly manner. So what's interesting about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus calling us into fuller life, full of people. When he ends Matthew chapter 5, he didn't know it was Matthew chapter 5, he was just talking, we gave the numbers later. He said, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. Be complete, be mature, be full as he is. In other words, the whole aim of the Sermon on the Mount was, you're going to be a different kind of person now, and I'm going to bring you into it. So let me finish um, with a, a quote from Dallas Willard, where he says that Jesus was not just acting for God, but also with God. A little like the way, in a crude metaphor, I act with my power steering or it with me. When I turn the wheel of my car, when we receive God's gift of life by relying on Christ, we find that God comes to act with us as we rely on him. As we come to God and we act in ways that are Godward and consistent with his character, we find that the empowerment of God comes with us. So that's character. It's what you express, it's what you repeat, what's been proved in you, it's what you exercise, it's what you focus on and how you make decisions, and it's the excellence you pursue, modeled in the Christ-like people around you and directly channeled through the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls his disciples, he says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it's this idea of we come and we follow Jesus with all our misconceptions, all our difficulties, all our sin, all our hang-ups, all our insecurities. And he says, come, follow me, and I will make you into someone who makes a difference and joins in that huge dance, that huge picture of what God wants to do in the world. It seems like a great time to meet with Jesus in communion. Over to you, Johnny.